sermon or written before that. So it's Paul's teaching about how the church is and how it's to work and how the fellowship is to uh, grow and how the Holy Spirit works within the believers and makes us work as a family, as a church, has been a, been a teaching of Paul for a, a long time and it's written down in his letters. And so as we get to Titus, uh, he again is sharing some of those teachings with Titus of how to establish a church and what to warn against that's around. Uh, here it is. The gospel had come to Crete in 30 AD. Titus received this letter from Paul somewhere around 60 AD. Crete was known as an island of 100 cities. During the 40 years, several churches had been established on the island, but they needed help. This was Titus's task to help the Cretan churches Alvin Barnes tells us uh, some challenges that Titus will encounter, encounter in his efforts to Crete. The character of the Cretans themselves was such as a demand, demand the diligence and care of Titus. They were a people characterized for insincerity, falsehood, and gross living. There was a great danger, therefore, that their religion would be hollow and insincere and a great need of caution lest they should be corrupted from the simplicity and purity required in the gospel. The influence of Judaizing teachers was to be guarded against. Judaizers, those are those that would tell the people that if you wanted to be a real good Christian as a Gentile, you needed to follow the Jewish customs. And so they imposed you have to be Jewish to be really Christian. That means circumcision, holding the feast days, holding the Jewish calendar, going to the temple, all that kind of stuff. It is evident from Acts 2, 11, that there were Jews residing there. And it is probably that it was by those who had gone from the island to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Pentecost and who had been converted on that occasion. The gospel was first introduced there. From this epistle, also, it is clear that one of the great dangers to piety in the churches of Crete arose from the efforts of such teachers, such teachers, and from the plausible arguments which they would use in favor of the Mosaic Law. To counterattack these, counteract these effective, the effects of their teaching, it was necessary to have ministers of the gospel appointed in every important place who should be qualified for their work. To make these arrangements was the great design for which Titus was left there, and to give him full information as to the kind of ministers which was needed, which was needed uh, when this epistle was written. So here we are in Titus. So we're going to go through this, we're going to review the first two paragraphs we talked about the last two Sundays. And we have, we're in chapter 1, if I can see that little red, there's a red one. Chapter 1, and it's basically setting up the right leadership. And so we're going through these, this chapter, looking at that. And the second chapter will deal on, okay, first taking charge. Second chapter is giving advice. And the third is uh, doing the right thing. 
Okay. So we're looking at chapter one. And so the, the theme that we have through this book is living, right living through sound doctrine. Right living through sound doctrine. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and world desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of God, our great glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So he's trying to encourage to live sensibly, righteously, and godly now because of what our great God and Savior Christ Jesus has done. He redeemed us. And that because we're now we're people of his own possession, we're also to be doing good works. So because we're saved, we do good works. We're not doing good works to be saved, but as a result of being saved, we do good works. Here's the first paragraph. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to Godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation which was entrusted according to the commandments of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So two weeks ago we looked at this, where we first we have to understand who we are. As Christians, who am I? Well, I'm a servant of God, and I am sent by Him. Each one of us, we're, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be His servant. And we also are to be able to share it, we are sent by God to be messengers. We want to grow in godliness. We want to enjoy eternity right now. It's not, eternity is not something that we wait for in the future. It's something that we begin to live right now. We can count on God's character because he does not lie. So we can rely upon his truths that he has given us in his word. We can trust in God's timing. Where there's a lot of things that... Uh, we might seem don't happen at the right time. Well, God's in charge. He's sovereign. And so God is in control. To give primacy in, to the proclamation. So it's important for us to share who Jesus Christ is to those around us. And commit to what we have in common. So as believers, Titus is writing to his child in a common faith, but it also tells us that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we're a part of this common faith. We're a part of the same family. That's the first paragraph. Second paragraph. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dispensation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, 
not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted, addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sober gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, without self-control, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So, there's a need. Elders need to be chosen. So, he gives a qualification of the elders. And so it talks about these things in these verses here about who an elder is, a man above reproach, moral and sexually pure. In the character, they have five negative and six positive attributes that he's talking about here. So that's what we studied last week. Then it talks about the doctrinal requirements, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So Paul was an apostle that was given the job by God to instruct. So was Peter, so was James, so was John. These different apostles, they wrote letters, they went and spoke to the churches and gave them the sound foundations of which they could establish. And so these are the where we're getting our information. We have the, the New Testament, which is basically the teaching that the apostles were giving to the churches. And so this is what Titus was supposed to look for people that would hold fast to those words. And then the, the elder had a job, two responsibilities. To exhort sound doctrine, which means he's supposed to teach the church the proper things. And the second is, he was to defend sound doctrine. So if there were people who were teaching incorrect things, then he would be able to stand up and say, well, that's incorrect. And so he would be able to defend sound doctrine. And so this is where we're starting right now, because the bridge to the third paragraph is actually this little clause down here, it says, uh, so that he will be able to both exhort sound in, exhort in sound teaching and to refute those who contradict. Refuting those who contradict is what this second, this third paragraph is we're going to look at now. For there are many rebellious and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sore gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. For this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. So it's a strong, very straightforward uh, advice that Paul is giving to Titus of how to approach people. So, refruiting, refute, uh, refruiting, <laughs> refruiting, refruiting, I can't say it, recruiting. <laughs> well, those who contradict, who are they? What do they do? And what's the ultimate solution? What should be our goal? 
in this. So the first is, we look at verse 9. The elder, or the overseer, is holding fast to the word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So that's what he wants Titus to be able to do. And so now we're looking at how does he refute? <laughs> that word is not coming out. Refute those who contradict. Refuting those who contradict. Now, we're going to see first part is, who are they? This is verses 10 through 12. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those who, of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sword gain. And so we see first here, we see their rebellious men. Now, rebellious men are basically those who reject authority. They're not listening to the authority of the apostles. These are men that have, have decided not to follow the teaching that Paul has done for almost you know, 20 years, uh, where you have Peter, James, and John also have been teaching and establishing the way the church should be. They've had councils and acts. You can read at the apostles, uh, uh, well, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the first 30 years of church history. And so the church has been established of where the authority is to come from and who has the authority. The apostles are laying down the foundational pieces. The, the church is built upon the teachings of the apostles and prophets, the chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ. And so these men are rebelling against. They're not uh, agreeing with or following the authority of the apostles. They're saying, we know a better way. And so, these are rebellious people. This is one characteristic. There are many types, but this is one is a rebellious man. The other is empty talkers. They like to talk a lot. And they like to really sound very intellectual. Very convincing. Having their own arguments. But it's not based upon, as we'll see later on, sound doctrine. The deceivers. A deceiver is someone that actually knows the truth, but wants to have you believe something different. And so they might have heard, understood what the truth is, but no, they're not in agreement, so they're going to trick you into believing something different. They want to deceive you. They mislead you. It might sound really good, but there's this one little thing that's off. That's what Generally, what we look at what we call the cults usually do. A cult is someone that is something similar to the true teaching, but then they is just a little bit different. And you have to be very conscious of what the truth is to be able to discern what the deception is. And so that's a challenge. But these are people that do that. So these false teachers are those that deceive. But the Spirit especially says that in a later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So this is something that Paul had warned about. Even in his time, 
but it also will be prevalent all the way through our church history. We can see they're deceivers. So we want to be able to be aware of that. I urge you, brethren, to keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, which you've learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth, flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the uns unsuspecting. So this is a false teacher. One that knows how to persuade and argue, but it's deceiving. So Paul saying to Titus, watch out for these kind of people. Don't let them be in the leadership. Especially those of the circumcision. Okay, what it is, Paul was writing to those, we mentioned this word Judaizers before. We can see that there's a problem we had in Galatians, where we had people that were from the Jewish faith that had tried to make Christianity into a, an extension of, of their Judaism. And so they wanted you, if you wanted to be a true Christian, you had to be a Jew. And so you had to be circumcised, you had to follow the Jewish customs and that kind of stuff. And so this was one of the groups of people that was, were false teachers. And what are they doing? They're upsetting whole families. House churches was very popular at this time, so usually when you go to these hundred cities that were on Crete, there would be small gatherings of people that were followers, and they most likely would, leave, would, would meet at home. And so this false teacher, false teacher would come to one house and influence the entire congregation, the, the entire church in that town, because of their false teaching. So it's not just one individual, they would affect a whole group. And also they did it for sword gain. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sword gain. They're doing it for their own profit. We have what those things we've listed right those six right there, we've seen we see those kind of people today in the world in starting churches or being leaders of religious organizations, gatherings. And this, this has been a very popular problem we've had in the last, uh, this last century. And, uh, we have what we call in America, that's where I'm from, we have televangelists, or we have some people who go around evangelists, and, and you look at what they're preaching and what their fruits are, it's, they're very wealthy. But they're very poor in seeing uh, on the, the God on God's stand. But they are doing it for their own benefit. And then we go to this little quote from this prophet, uh, Ephraim, I think I can't, I can't pronounce his name, but he's a fellow from Crete. Uh, 600 years before, he is a very well known poet, and he made this statement that about his own. People, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy dolphins. And so it's talking about a characteristic trait. Like an Alborg uh, is known for being the happiest city in Europe. And so a characteristic of what people who come here say, okay, people must be somewhat satisfied with life. They have, have a good outlook on life. They're positive. They, 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 
they're supposed to be happy. And so probably in general, there is something like that in, in the town. Sort of, and so the problem is people be proud of that. And so that's because of the problem. But, but the character, it's like also, how do you know what a town like Paris, what's its name? It's the city of lights. New York is the, the big apple. Texas is known for everything's big in Texas. And so you have different characteristics that are sort of a caricature of what that place is. It's not true 100% in every situation, but you can see that. You can see it sort of rings true. Well, with the Cretans, they're liars. They're evil beasts. I mean, they're just vicious people. And they're lazy gluttons. And so these could be characteristics of these Paul Caesars. What is their demeanor? What, who, what are they like? And so when you peel away and look down at their core, they're not really nice people. So Paul says, here's who you are to refute, Timothy, on this island of Crete. You don't want these characteristics to be part of the leadership team you're building in each church. So what to do? And it uses, it uses this word right here, reprove them severely. Okay, the problem is that these false teachers were leading whole families away from the true gospel. It was a work-based theology. Truth is a doctrine of grace. We have truth. The, the truth is, is that we're saved by grace. We're saved by faith through grace. No, we're saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. It's not a works-based system. The Judaizers would basically say you have to do all these works in order for you to please God, in order for you to be right, the right account with God. You have to become a Jew. You have to be under this legal system in order to, to be right with God. And so it's works-based. And so it was a problem. And so he was supposed to reprove them severely. Now there's a hope when you reprove. But first I, I got a couple verses here. I'm amazed that you're so quick. Oh, we already read this, isn't we? I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by grace, the grace of Christ, for a different gospel, which is really not another. Yet there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And we have said before, and so say again now, if any man preaches to you a different a gospel, contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. So Paul's not very timid, or um, he was uh, soft in his rebuke or correction when he hears someone teaching a false gospel. And so he's very strong about that. So when he reproves, he's not being gentle. That was it. He's not being gentle on the reproof, reproof of a false teacher. But let's look at some of the things in, in Proverbs, of what Proverbs says about rebuking someone. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. The same word. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And so there's, there can be a positive understanding of the word rebuke. Why even take the effort to rebuke? Another thing. 
Do not reprove a scoffer, for he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So can there be a positive reaction or response to rebuke? It looks like there can be a positive. Strike a scoffer and the naive may become true, but reprove one who has understanding and he will gain knowledge. So if you reprove someone, there's a possibility of a good response. The goal and hope of the rebuke or reproval is restoration. When we look at in the New Testament, we'll, okay, we'll just read a couple verses here. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spiritual gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will too not be tempted. Well, this is a little, this time when we're talking about falling into sin, but there's also a rebuke going on here in the spirit of gentleness. But when we look at, when you're teaching incorrectly, you have to correct harshly sometimes. The rebuke can be harsh. But when you look at, if you remember the story of Apollos, when he came to, I can't remember which town it was in, in where we did Acts, and then um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and said, what you're teaching is, your teaching is good, but you don't know the whole truth. So he was reproved in, or taught, in a home setting and, and corrected. And then a policy came out and really was strong preaching, everything 100%. So he wasn't purposely trying to mislead people. He just didn't have the whole truth. So when someone is uh, in error, we're supposed to rebuke them, restore them. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won a brother. And so I think one of the goals Paul has telling Timothy, reprove these people. But Titus, excuse me, Titus. He tells Titus to go out and reprove these people is hopefully get a response. Because what it says, reprove them severely instead of re reprove them gently. Severely. That word severely is like taking an axe to the door of a burning house. So you don't go Hello, hello, your house is on fire. You might die if you don't get up. No, you're going to go and really hit it hard. And so this is really a very serious situation. And so it's very strong. And so I say, reprove them severely. So it's something that's very harsh, but there was a, a purpose to it. Why is it so they may be sound in the faith? So he has, he's giving these people a chance if they will respond. To be sound of faith. And not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Jewish myths will be what we're talking the Judaizers and the commandments of men of where we make up our own rules and try to figure out how to follow God and we think it makes really good sense. And we build it on certain philosophies and all kinds of stuff, but not built upon 
the work of Christ. So what's the solution? What can we do? Like Paul has given Titus two things. He's given him the uh, who they are and what are you to do and then what is the solution? Well, it's to turn to God is the only solution. You see here. To the pure, all things are pure. But those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Not outer action is what's important, but what's in the heart. It's not what you eat that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. This is what the Judaizers' error was, is they're saying, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to do all the right things according to the Jewish law. It's an outward performance-based system. You're following rules and regulations. You're going to the temple on the Sabbath, or to the synagogue or whatever. You're washing uh, your hands the right way when you eat meals. You're not eating any undefiled food like pork or other kinds of, uh, of things. You're, uh, there's a whole list of things you do. And so it's an outward performance. But your insight can be wrong. And so this list that we had before, this was this wrong with the inside of their heart. Their, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. Here's one of the way that Isaiah puts something that makes it clear for us. These people come near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. So they have a system that they're following that's not based upon God's grace. And what by this, by having their conscience and, uh, and their mind and their conscience are defiled, they profess to know God, but their deeds, by the deeds they deny Him, being detestable, <laughs> detestable, disobedient, and worthless. Now these aren't good attributes. Detestable. When you look in the Old Testament and also the New Testament, we see where our lives are to be a good fragrance, a good aroma to the Lord. Like when you have incense or that kind of stuff where it has a, a nice aroma. Well, these people have an aroma, but it stinks. So it's not something that is something that pleases the Lord. It's a foul odor. That's the testimony. Disobedient. Disobedient refuses to be persuaded. They refuse to be persuaded. There are those who don't believe, not because of insufficient evidence, but because of their proud hearts. So these are disobedient, not because they've seen the evidence, or there's not enough evidence, 
is because they choose not to believe. They choose to do it their own way. There's a right, you see, there's, uh, there's a problem spread today, I can't really see. Uh, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to destruction. So these people think they're doing everything right, but it's just going the wrong, it's not going to end up well. And the third, worthless for any good deeds. Being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Worthless, it's unfit, it's rejected because of impurity. For example, if you're building a steel bridge and you're using steel girders and you need to have the steel needs to be pure steel, it can't be mixed in with different types of alloys. It's not pure. Because the, the, the integrity of the strength of a steel beam is when it's pure steel. But if you have different kinds of things in there, dirt mixed in or different kinds of stuff, then it won't be able to stand. So it's unfit to use. It might look fantastic, but it won't bear the weight. And so these people that he's talking about they are, what is their option? They need to turn to God because the only solution is to not be in that situation. There's a man named John Wesley. He and his brother Charles Wesley came to America back in the 1700s as missionaries. And when they went back to England, uh, John Wesley then became a Christian. So he went to the mission field as a preacher and he wasn't a believer. Then he found out something. But in his diary he wrote this. I did go thus for many years as many in this place can testify using diligence to eschew all evil and to have a conscious void of offense. He was living a very well life. He didn't do anything bad and he uh, tried to avoid offending him. Redeem the time, bind up every opportunity of doing good to all men, constantly and carefully using all the public and all the private means of grace, endeavoring after a stead steady seriousness of behavior at all times and in all places. And God is my record before whom I stand, doing all this in sincerity, having a real design to, design to serve God, a heartily desire, hearty desire to do His will in all things, to please Him who had called me to fight the good fight, and to lay hold of eternal life. Yet my own conscience bears me witness in the Holy Ghost that all this time I was but almost Christian. He was almost a Christian because he was trying to live the life by his own efforts, his own means, his own way of thinking. Turning to God is the only solution. Here's just an idea of a prayer of what it means to give your life to Christ. This is a guy named Brian Bell. He wrote this. 
Lord Jesus, for too long I have kept you out of my life. I admit that I am a sinner and that I cannot save myself. I repent of my sins by changing, by changing my mind about the way I've been living. I don't want to be detestable, disobedient, and unfit any longer. I'm not going to close the door when I hear you knocking. I believe and gratefully receive your gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth. With all my heart, I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on the third day. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. I receive you into my heart. I confess that you now, Lord, in my life. Make to me, make me into the person you want me to be. Amen. So this is the kind of prayer, the attitude that you have to become a Christian. And so all of us, if we want to have a relationship with God and be in this family of a Christian, we have to come to this door of acknowledgement of who Christ is and what he's done for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that you know no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. And so it's God's grace, and we put our faith in them. And so the problem with the Judaizers that were teaching, they would say, you have to do the good works. You have to follow these plans, this system, in order to be saved. But where Paul is teaching is that, no, you cannot earn your salvation. You have to accept the free gift that God has given. And then, when you receive this gift, then God will give the ability for you to do good works. And so your good works are a <coughs> evidence that you are a follower of Christ. So if you have any questions about this, you're more than welcome to come and talk to me about it afterwards. <coughs> so what Titus' role is doing here is he's, he's saying, encouraging right living through sound doctrine. So he wants you to live right, but you do that by being on the found, sound foundation of, of good doctrine. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, <coughs> and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own position, zealous for good deeds. Next week, 
we're going to have a fellow called Peter Bergstrom. He is a professor at the university. He is a professor of uh, philosophy. And he's also a very strong believer. And so he's going to just come and share with a little bit of his life and also an encouragement to us in just our different walks of life of where we're at. And so please come if you have any friends that are uh, would be interested in hearing a, a... He's also a knight. He's been knighted by the queen for his uh, works uh, in, in, uh, in Denmark. He's been a part of the ethics board of Denmark, whatever it is, I can't some kind of commission to try to figure out what's ethically right to do in, in, in life here in Denmark. So he's been very active in the political arena, but also he's a very outspoken Christian. And so he'll be here next week to share with us. So, so if there's any questions about uh, Titus, just uh, ask me afterwards. Dear God, just thank you so much that we can, again, look at Paul's letter to Titus, just the encouragement that he's trying to give this uh, man, Titus, as he looks for uh, to help the churches on this little island of Crete, and how this instruction can also be uh, a study for us to learn how and and know how to follow you with a humble heart. Not seeking our own, but seeking your will. I just pray that you will just teach each one of us and help us to be the person you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lee. Um, small groups. Uh, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday as well. I have to push the button.